If you have your Bibles, your electronic copy of God's Word, your paper copy of God's Word, whatever it is that you're used to looking at, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be looking today at verses 17 through 34, verses 17 through 34 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This passage of Scripture is on the Lord's Supper. As we've been walking through, Paul has transitioned into answering certain questions that had been submitted to him, and he's also been dealing with certain problems that are taking place in the Corinthian church. We got through one of the biggest problems last week. We're moving into the problem with the Lord's Supper this week, and then later on, we're going to look at the problem of tongues, the problem of spiritual gifts, things of that nature. So this passage is going to be about the Lord's Supper. I'll never forget it. I was with some lost family members, and we had decided to go to church on Christmas Eve. Now, they wanted to go to church on Christmas Eve. Anytime you're with lost family members and they want to go to church, it's a good thing to do. And so we decided to go to church on Christmas Eve. We go to this church that I'm not familiar with at all. It just happens to be a church that's in the neighborhood. And as we are in that service, they begin to pass around a tray filled with these little wafers, these little square wafers. They give very little instruction. They don't talk very much about what's going on, but they pass them. After they tell you to take one of the wafers, the guy up front says a few words, and you're supposed to eat it, and it tastes like a stale saltine cracker. Anybody ever had one of those? Then they pass around this tray. In this tray, they have these little cups, and in these little cups is a liquid that resembles a reddish color, and they tell you that you take and you drink of that little liquid, and you realize it's Welch's grape juice. And, and then afterwards, we get out and we walk out and I get a question from the lost family member. What in the world was all of that about? And I thought to myself, what a missed opportunity to explain why we do what we call the Lord's Supper. In this passage, some of you know very clearly what the Lord's Supper is all about. So for you today, some of this will just be a review, but some of you may be sitting there wondering what really do we do what really takes place when the Lord's Supper occurs? And that's what Paul is laying out for them here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Let me read it to you, and let's stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 17, it says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Dear Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would help us to think thoughts that are higher than our own thoughts. I pray that you would help me to say only the things that you want me to say and to keep me from saying anything else. And I pray that Jesus will be lifted up and that you will be glorified. And we ask this in his name, amen. You may be seated. What we see here in this passage of scripture is we see three different breakdowns as we look and to try to determine how to, how to separate the text. First, we see a self-centered gathering in verses 17 through 22. Then we look and we see a symbolic celebration in verses 23 through 26. And then we see self-examination in verses 27 through 34. So as we look at this, we'll begin looking at the first section where it talks about the self-centered gathering. In verse 17, it says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. You'll remember in chapter 11, verse one, he says, now I commend you. So he set them up and he's saying, I commend you in some things. He transitions to this and he says, in this, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. There were problems taking place in the celebration. Now, the background to the Lord's Supper that was taking place in Corinth is that they had established the Lord's Supper based off of the Passover meal that had been celebrated when Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. So there was a meal likely taking place. This church was probably gathering in some of the wealthier people's homes, and as they came, some were already eating. Others had little or no food to eat. They were not as well off. And it says some here were even drunk. And so he doesn't commend them because when they come together, it's not for the building of up of the kingdom, but is for the worse. It says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, that's a key word, because when you come together as an ecclesia, that's an important thing to understand, the Greek word there for church. When we come together, it's as a body, it's as a group, it's as the called out ones. And so as we gather together as the church, and this gathering is not the church, this is the chapel gathering of Cedarville University, but on Sunday, when you gather in that body that we call the church, you come together for unity. You don't come together to make each other worse. You don't come together to have factions. You don't come together to have divisions, but you come together in unity as the body of Christ, as the ones called out by God, as the ones assembled together. And so when that church comes together, that church celebrates what we call the Lord's Supper. Now, there are many different names for it, and I'll go ahead and hit this right quick. How many of you are used to calling it the Lord's Supper? Raise your hand. How many of you are used to calling it communion? Raise your hand. How many of you are used to calling it the Eucharist? Raise your hand. How many of you are used to calling it a sacrament or mass or something of that nature? 
You've got all these different words. Now, sacrament and mass, I didn't include in my list here for you because sacrament comes from a Latin word and mass also comes from the Latin word. Mass meaning descend and it encompasses more and sacrament also slightly different. But in the scripture, you have various examples of what we call this celebration. You have the breaking of bread in Acts 2.42. You have communion in 1 Corinthians 10.16. You have the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 10.21. You have the Lord's supper actually in this passage that we're looking at today in 11.20, and then you also have Thanksgiving or Eucharist in 11.24. And so you can see there are many different names that you could call what we're talking about. What we're talking about, though, is encompassed in when you gather together and you have as a local church somebody up front and they take the bread. In 1 Corinthians 10, it was the one loaf analogy. And so in older days, when you had smaller churches, you may actually have somebody that would take the one loaf and then that one loaf, picture in your mind an unleavened loaf of bread, meaning that it did not rise. Now, why unleavened? Because it was based off of the Passover, and at the Passover, they had unleavened bread. And so a lot of churches choose to use the unleavened bread in order to stick to that tradition. And you would actually have the pastor up front breaking that unleavened bread. You would also, in some of the older churches, have one cup that was passed around with a towel or with something to wipe the one cup with before you took a drink of it. Anybody here ever had the one cup passed in your church services? Very few. How many of you are used to the little bitty plastic cups that you like to collect at the end of the service as a little kid and see who could get the biggest stack? Raise your hand. That's most of us, all right? The tots and trays, that was called, and it was created because of what reason? Well, it's pretty gross to drink after 300 people in front of you, even if you have a little towel to wipe it off, right? And so because you want to make sure that you have good hygiene, they created the little tots and trays. And so you understand what we're talking about. I typically call it the Lord's Supper based out of scripture, but you can call it any of these other things. So he says in the first place, when you come together as a church, you've got divisions. That's a problem. When you come together as a church, you have factions. That's a problem. But he says you do this, and in fact, he says in verse 19, there must be factions in order that those who are genuine among you be recognized. So what he's saying there is if you have divisions and factions that in some sense that separates those out who don't want to follow Christ, who are worried about their own self-interest, and so to some degree, there's a necessary separating out that takes place here and demonstrates those who really want to follow Christ. And then he says in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, then what are they eating? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Okay, here's the problem. We like to say that the wine in the New Testament times had no alcoholic content to it, right? Because that's convenient. Some people like to say it didn't. I've even got a commentary sitting on my desk that talks about how this was diluted one part wine to 32 parts water so that it wouldn't contain any alcohol in it. Whatever it was that they were drinking in this context had enough alcohol in it that somebody got drunk. And so that's just what the text says, and that's just what we have to believe and what we have to indicate here is that whatever this is, it had enough in it in order for it to be drunk. But there's an important point here, because if you grew up in a context where you believed in transubstantiation, which means that the actual elements, the the water and the wine or the bread turned into the body and to the blood of Christ, that they actually changed. If you believed in that transubstantiation, if this wine actually turned into the blood of Christ, can you get drunk off of blood? I don't know, I've never tried it. 
I would encourage you not to try it either. But there's something here that says to us, transubstantiation is probably not what's going on because these elements didn't lose their properties and it said here that somebody was getting drunk. It's not about whether there's alcohol in the wine or no alcohol in the wine. Because you understand the point here is that when you come together, he's saying to them, one of you sitting there and you're eating your meal and there are people coming into the door who have nothing. And so you're making them feel bad because they have nothing and you have everything. The nice house and you're eating all of the food and you're making them feel awful. And so we go back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10 where we consider others before ourselves, where we're always looking out for others' interests and we don't want to be a stumbling block. And Paul's saying here, here's yet another way where you're selfish and where you're not looking out for others' interests because you're eating and they have nothing to eat and that creates a problem. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And then we transition. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And in verse 23, he starts with what he received from the Lord. And so what he received, he delivered. And that is that the Lord took, and on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. Now, you've all read this from Matthew and other passages in the Gospels as well. And here Paul gives us uh, his example of it. And he says that he had given thanks. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Now, that phrase, this is my body, has created a lot of controversy over the years. You've had some people who says when Jesus says, this is my body, that at that moment, the bread actually became his body because they're focusing on the this is my body. You have some who say that it's not transubstantiation where it actually became the body, but it remained as elements as bread, but there's a consubstantiation that took place so that the body is in with and under the elements, and so you have that view take place. Then you have Calvin who comes along in his view and just wants to say there's a spiritual aspect taking place, but we're not really sure what elements of of that all spiritual aspects he's talking about. And so he creates confusion. And then you come along to the Baptist viewpoint, which is just a memorial view. And they say, no, it doesn't mean that. It's just a symbolic representation. We focus on the do this in remembrance of me rather than the this is. So let me take just a moment and tell you why we focus on remembrance rather than this is. If you look in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John, I've got several examples for you of where Jesus says he is something or says that he's to be something or I am something, but we don't take him literally in this. In John ten nine, he says, I am the door. Have you ever heard anybody go around talking about Jesus being a door? In John 15, 1, he says, I'm the true vine. In John 8, 12, he says, I'm the light of the world. In John 10, 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. When he gives parables, he will talk about different things, symbolizing different things. And he'll say, the sower is this, or the, or the field is this. And the is in that means represents. It doesn't mean that it actually is something. And so what we say is that when we hold up the bread, the bread represents Jesus's body. It doesn't become Jesus's body. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit of a fact. It's a debated fact, but it is, it is a possibility. A lot of people in transubstantiation believe that that's the background for the words hocus pocus. Anybody ever heard hocus pocus? What do you do when you hocus pocus something? You have a hat, black hat. You have a wand. You put something in the hat, you take your wand, you wave it around, you tap it, and you pull something else out, right? Hocus pocus, out comes something different. 
Well, here's how that developed. And, and there's two different theories of this is how Hocus Pocus developed. This is one theory. Is that when the, Lat, when the priest would get up and speak in the Latin, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, that when he said hoc est corpus meum so fast that people who didn't understand Latin took that to mean hocus pocus, hoc est corpus meum. You see how you can blend that together? And so when the bread becomes the body, some people believe that's where hocus pocus came from and that you have one element, you say some magic words and it becomes a different element. And so now you can impress all your friends with one of the history of origins of hocus pocus, right? That's not what happened here, at least in my belief. You have some people believe transubstantiation. They try to defend it from John 6 in particular where it says, unless you eat my flesh, unless you eat of my body, and when Jesus there is talking about eat of the body, it's symbolic too. We're not cannibals. And so we don't believe in transubstantiation because Jesus offered a sacrifice once for all. When we chew on the bread, we're not chewing on the body of Christ, which is really a little bit disgusting. And so we can all just say, ooh, right there. We don't want to do that. And so we hold to a symbolic view, but we don't just hold to a memorial view. How many of you have ever been to a memorial service? It's pretty sad, right? You go and you memorialize something that's really bad that happened. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about the Lord's Supper. It's more significant than just a memorial. So he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But the word for remembrance here, and I put you a line up here, it's more than just a memorial. It should bring to your minds, to many sights, to the mind's eye. When we talk about do this in remembrance of me, when we have the bread and when we have the, the juice, the fruit of the vine, what we're doing is Jesus has given us a picture, a symbol, so that when somebody's up at the front, whether they're breaking that bread or whether we look at the little wafer that's passed around and we realize that that symbolizes the body of Christ that has been broken for us, that it should bring back to our mind's eye, not just a little wafer, not just a little cup that's full of juice. And it's not just a memorial, but it should bring to our mind's eye our own sinfulness. Our own fact that we were lost, we were destitute in sin, we could do nothing to help ourselves, and Jesus came down to this earth in the form of a babe and lived a perfect life and died a voluntary death on the cross and hung on the cross, his body broken, his blood spilled out so that his body could pay our sin debt, so that his blood could be the new covenant that we then receive, so that when we look at these elements, the flood in our mind is a flood of emotion and gratitude and remembrance and memorial, but it's also a celebration because we look around at all the others that we are celebrating with and we realize that Christ died not just for me and my sin, but he died for you and your sin and he died for you and your sin and he died for all of you and your sin and we see how great our God is so that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not something that should just be a somber moment, but it should be a celebration because we don't celebrate a God who died and who was in a grave, but we celebrate a God who got out of the grave and a God who ascended and is at the right hand of the Father and a God that is coming again one day victorious. And that God's gonna be the God that raises us up from the dead and takes us to live with him. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's how great our God is. He says his body was broken. That little wafer, that unleavened bread, whatever you're using to celebrate that, it was broken for you. It was done in remembrance of Jesus. And in the same way he took the cup, 
And in a lot of churches, they used to take the, the, a picture of whatever they were using, they would pour it out to symbolize the pouring out of the blood. And, and even if they had the little tots and trays already set up, they would pour out that just so that you could get an image again in your mind's eye of the blood being spilt for you and for your sin and that that's how much Jesus loves you. And it says in the same way, after the supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so that's what we do. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, why aren't we celebrating the Lord's Supper right now? Because that would be a perfect opportunity to celebrate it when I'm preaching on it. It's because God came to establish the church. And in establishing the church, he gave these ordinances to the church. And the two ordinances that he gave, the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, because those two ordinances are the ordinances that preach the gospel. In baptism, it talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as you have been baptized. And that symbolizes your own death to your old self, being raised into newness of life. And in the Lord's Supper, you have another ordinance that's given to the local church where you celebrate the death and the pouring out of Christ's body and blood for you. And in both of those, you preach the gospel. Now, when you think about the Lord's Supper as preaching the gospel to other people, it gives you an entirely new thought of how you celebrate it. Yes, we look at our own sin. Yes, we look back at Christ's death. But it also says to us here, we also do this as oft as you do it in remembrance of him. And look at verse 26. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death until he comes. We can't forget the last part. We look around and we celebrate with others. We look back in remembrance, but we look forward in celebration. One of my fears is that far too often we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and it's this somber, meaningless ceremony that nobody really knows what it means. Nobody really gives it the attention it needs. Nobody looks forward with celebrating ahead to what happens And so what I want you to get out of this is that in this passage, Paul is giving us a great theology of the Lord's Supper. We look around because we have fellowship with other believers. We look back in remembrance, but we look forward in anticipation of what God's going to do. Just another little tidbit that's just a fun fact. Anybody here like Welch's grape juice? Do you know why Welch's grape juice was founded, why it was started? Dr. Thomas Welch, in I believe 1869, established Welch's grape juice as an alternative to the fermented wine that was used for communion. And so back during those days, he had an unfermented process of having the wine and it was originally named Dr. Welch's grape juice. And then when I think it was his grandson came along, they dropped the doctor from it and they used it at the World's Fair and everybody tasted it and liked it and began drinking it. And now we have Welch's grape juice. But it started from a Methodist who didn't want to use wine in the communion process. That's for free. It has nothing to do with today. But I just thought it was a fun fact. So we have to transition now to the self-examination. Look at what happens in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. How many of you had churches that would do a good job of letting you know ahead of time the Lord's Supper is coming so that you could prepare and examine yourself and would give you a time or a moment of examination so that you would be able to think about your own sin, to repent, and to get right with God? How many of you had churches that did that? Most of you come from really good churches if you have a church that did that. If you're in leadership at a church, don't be one of those churches that surprises everybody Sunday morning with, oh yeah, we're going to do the Lord's Supper, because you're not taking it seriously. 
If you're not taking it seriously, nobody else is going to take it seriously. And what Paul says here is to examine themselves. You're to examine yourself so that you don't take it and drink of it in an unworthy manner. And look at what he says here. For anyone who eats and drinks, in verse 29, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in high school. Wasn't really living like I was supposed to for the Lord. And I'd go to church, and we would have the Lord's Supper. I'm the preacher's kid, sitting at the back of the auditorium. They would pass around, and I would get the smallest of the little square wafers, I would take the smallest of the little cup, not the one in the center that you used to get fussed at for pulling out as a kid, but one of, the, one of the ones that had the least amount of grape juice in it. And when my father said to take it, I would put it in the side of my lip as though it were a dip of tobacco. I would take the juice and put it in my mouth. Immediately after the service was over, I would leave the church and spit it out in the bush. Now, why did I do that? I knew I wasn't living right. I didn't want to drink condemnation. Now, does it make it any better I spit it out in the bush? No, not at all, all right? That's not, I'm not saying do that. But I'm saying to you, examine yourself and get right with God before you take the Lord's Supper. It was this verse that scared me at that point. Eventually, verses like this scared me into getting right with God, where he says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, I don't know about you, but as a little boy, when my dad would preach and say that if you partake of the Lord's Supper wrong, you could be dead, That'd scare me. That's what Paul says, though. He also talks here twice about judging and discerning of the body. Now, that may not mean your own body. That may mean the body of believers that surround you. Whoever doesn't discern the body well, whoever is not out for the betterment of the brothers, looking out for others, whoever it is that's making these other people who have nothing feel as though they have nothing and humiliate them, he says to them, you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You're not treating others in the way Christ would treat them. So without discerning the body, you eat and you drink judgment on yourself. That is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we were judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33, so then brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, eat at home. We don't have to worry about that these days. Most of us don't have the meal that is associated with the Lord's Supper, and you're not going to get stuffed on those little wafers anyway. And so, but what he's saying here is look out for others. When you come together, wait for one another. Perhaps that's a good reason why we all partake together rather than having different stations all throughout that people go to. But the New Testament doesn't give us a strict command as to what we're supposed to do. But when you come together, you wait for one another. You look out for your brothers. If anyone's hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then Paul says something to them about the other things I will give directions when I come. Well, we don't know what the other things are. What we do know is this. Paul's telling them, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you look around to others, you look inwardly at yourself, you repent, you confess, you get right with God. You look back in remembrance, but you also look forward in celebration. And here's what I want you to make sure you get and you understand. The Lord's Supper is what he has given us as a gift, as a picture of his death for us, his body being broken, his blood being poured out, that we celebrate it until he comes. Let's take it seriously. Let's take it seriously in our own lives. Let's take it seriously in the lives of whatever body it is that we're a member of. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, today, I do pray that even though we're not a church and we're not partaking of the Lord's Supper, that you would help us to think in our own lives about our sinfulness and about the grace you've extended to us on the cross. Father, thank you for having a body that was broken, blood that was poured out, so that we could have the new covenant, Lord, a relationship with you by grace through faith. Father, may we live not in a way of just remembering that as a memorial, but in a way of celebrating the fact that until you come again, you have given us this ordinance that we may utilize to help our minds think about you. God, we thank you. We're humbled today before you. Father, we're not worthy and we know it, but we just appreciate the grace you've extended to us. I pray that in our lives today, you would be lifted up and glorified. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.